openly about the things churches do that many people, especially non-Christians, might find a little bit strange. But when you really think about it, none of the things we've talked about so far is really all that weird. A non-Christian person might hear about them or see them practiced, and they might think to themselves, well, preaching, it's basically just sitting around and listening to a 30-minute lecture from the Bible. And I might not agree with everything that person says, but the act of preaching itself really isn't that remarkable. And then what about singing? Well, that's no big deal either. I mean, everybody sings from time to time, and a few songs each week probably won't do any harm. And then what about giving? Well, I might not donate any of my money to a church, but if that's what they want to do with their money, then that's their business. And in fact, many churches do a lot of good things with the money that they collect. The point is that preaching, singing, and giving really aren't that weird in and of themselves. People might consider these things churchy stuff, but the practices themselves aren't all that bizarre. But today we shift away from the relatively tame things that churches do and focus on the more foreign practices, the things that many would say are more explicitly religious. So this week we talk about baptism, and next week we'll talk about communion. Why do we practice these things, and what do they mean? So whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, baptized or unbaptized, I hope you'll leave today with a better understanding of why churches like ours take baptism seriously. So open up to Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we have here and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Father, thank you for the churchy stuff that we do here. Uh, It's very easy to think about these things, preaching and singing and giving and even things like baptism, even things like communion. It's very easy to look at them and think of them as routine or boring to the point where they even begin to lose their significance. Uh, And Father, I pray that these practices wouldn't lose their significance. And I pray that these practices would find their significance, not because they're somehow touching to us, not just because it's what we've always done, not just because it gives us good memories of times in church or good memories of people we admire, but rather these things that we do in our church would find their meaning and find their significance in you, in your son, in your spirit, and in your word. And so, Father, as we read about baptism this morning, as we learn about baptism, I pray that you give us open hearts and open minds and open ears to what you have to say. And, Father, thank you that through your son's cross and through your son's empty tomb, these churchy things that we do have not just meaning in this life, but have eternal significance. Father, we love you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for this church. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you spent much time in churches, especially more traditional, formal, or maybe even more high church atmospheres, you may have heard a unique word used. And that word is sacrament. Sacrament is a theological word coming from the Latin sacramentum, 
which is really just a translation of the Greek word for mystery. Churches have used the word sacrament in mysterious ways throughout history. A sacrament is defined by some as an effective sign, or some say a visible sign of invisible grace, whatever that means. Augustine, one of the earliest church leaders, calls a sacrament a visible word, a visible word. He says that a sacrament is a promise issued by God, but acted out by us in the form of a ceremony. Roman Catholic and Orthodox Christians typically recognize seven sacraments. Protestant Christians like us usually recognize two. But in all of these churches, across history, languages, traditions, and denominations, one of those sacraments has always been considered baptism. Protestant Christians like us don't throw the word sacrament around lightly. But baptism truly is that important. And so we could agree in calling it a sacrament. Now, as far back as you look, observers of all kinds of religious systems have used water in religious ceremonies. It's seen in Egyptian, Mesopotamian, Hittite, and Greek cultures. Lots of people for a long time have recognized the symbolic value of cleansing someone from impurities or cleansing something from imperfections. It's somewhat similar to how we may use the phrase, a clean slate or a fresh start. But our uniquely Christian beliefs about baptism find their roots in Scripture. Believe it or not, there is some Old Testament background for baptism. For example, in the book of Leviticus, God lays down specific laws about how the Israelites were to separate clean things from unclean things, sacred things from common things. There were specific guidelines about how to become clean again if you touch something unclean. That often related to sexual impurities, diseases, touching animals, or even touching a dead body. There's also the Old Testament idea of consecration. Consecration was a special kind of cleansing, often in preparation for an important task or in anticipation of some big event that God was about to set in motion. In the book of Exodus, the priests were consecrated before they started serving in the tabernacle. Joshua tells the Israelites to consecrate themselves as they get ready to enter the promised land. And then finally, there was something known as Jewish proselyte baptism. If a non-Jewish person wanted to be incorporated into the people of Israel, the people of God, they were identified as a proselyte. And one thing a proselyte would do to be welcomed into the family of God was a certain kind of baptism. That was their initiation. But baptism as we know it really begins to emerge in the Gospels. So let's start by reading one of the more famous baptism passages, starting in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. We read there. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, which, by the way, I think those things are going to come back in style at some point. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will gather his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John the Baptist's ministry centered around baptism. Hence his name, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And his form of baptism revolved around two key themes that we just read about. Theme number one was confessing and repenting of sins. And theme number two was an expectation of God's judgment. But as we just read, John the Baptist was very open about the fact that his ministry was really just a preview. Someone far greater than him would come after him. And that person would offer a far greater baptism. And it's no coincidence that right after we read those verses, we read about Jesus. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus' baptism by John marks the beginning of his earthly ministry. And he gets the clear stamp of approval from God the Father. When God the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now a lot of people have asked, why was Jesus baptized by John? I mean, he didn't have any sin to confess. He didn't have any sin to repent of. Some people wonder if he was trying to show solidarity with sinners. Other people say he was trying to serve as a good example. But Jesus simply says it is to fulfill all righteousness. A somewhat mysterious answer. So we see baptism at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. But we also see baptism at the end of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20, Jesus says... Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So before his ministry begins, Jesus gets baptized. And then after his death and resurrection, Jesus again is talking about baptism. He tells his followers that baptism is one aspect of their great commission. It's part of their calling and part of ours to go out and make disciples of all nations. Baptism is featured at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and it's featured again at the end. But then outside of the gospels, the importance of baptism is seen repeatedly in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter preaches, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So in Peter's first ever sermon, he tells those people who believe the gospel to repent and be baptized. And with just a few exceptions, baptism is the default response of a new believer in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, Philip uses the Old Testament to teach the traveling Ethiopian eunuch about who Jesus is and what he's done. And how does that man respond after he hears about Christ? The eunuch says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. In Acts chapter 9, Saul, later to be known as Paul, is knocked off his horse, sees and hears the risen Christ, loses his sight, and is called by God to a life of faith and a life of ministry. And then just a few days later, Paul is baptized by a Christian named Ananias. It keeps going. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is amazed that God welcomes Gentiles into his new family of faith in Christ. Peter declares that these people have clearly been given new life by the Holy Spirit the same way he was. And those Gentile believers are baptized. And then finally, in Acts chapter 19, Paul encounters believers who have never even heard of the Holy Spirit, though they were baptized years earlier through John the Baptist's ministry. Paul commands them to be baptized specifically into Christ. It turns out that John the Baptist was right way back in Matthew chapter 3. A greater baptism really did arrive in the person and work of Jesus. So from the earliest days of the church, baptism has been a core practice of our faith. We didn't just make this up. We didn't just start doing it because some other religious systems did it and we thought it might be a good idea. Baptism goes all the way back to Jesus himself. Baptism is deeply woven into our identity as Christians. And to the earliest leaders in the church... The thought of an unbaptized believer was simply unheard of. We practice baptism because Jesus told us to. And we practice baptism because Christians literally always have. But we still haven't really answered the question, what does baptism mean? And for that, we get out of the Gospels, we get out of the book of Acts, and we turn to other places in the New Testament. So open up to Romans chapter 6, verse 1, that first passage you opened up to. Paul says there, 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So according to Paul, baptism is an imitation of dying and rising. The way that Christ died and rose. That's part of why we practice immersion here at Prairie View. You're lowered down into the water and you're raised back up, dying and rising. Martin Luther once said that immersion brings out the full significance of baptism. Again, it displays that imagery of death and resurrection. And that imagery of dying and rising... It also serves to remind us of the sin that we leave behind when we follow Christ. And it reminds us of the new life that we've been given. Baptism is not meant to be the end of some journey to find God. Baptism is just the beginning of our discipleship. And baptism is anything but an excuse to pursue sin. That's part of what Paul's talking about in Romans 6. People who use the argument that, well, we're saved by grace, so it's a free-for-all now, right? Paul says, no, that's not the case at all. How can you who have died to sin still live in it? You have been buried and you have been raised. And baptism is a reminder of the righteousness, a reminder of the holiness that we're called to pursue. Paul talks about similar things in Colossians chapter 2 and 3. He mentions baptism right before he starts teaching about taking off our old identity of sin, our old identity of rebellion, and putting on the new identity that God has given us as his children. Dying and rising, putting off and putting on. Look at Galatians chapter 3 verse 27. Paul, speaking again, says there, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So baptism serves as a visible sign that we have been united to Christ. But it also reminds us that we've been united to each other as fellow believers. Paul gets at it again in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You may have almost nothing in common with the believer sitting next to you, but you've been saved by the same Christ. You share the same faith, and you are part of the same family of God. And your baptism and their baptism reminds you of your shared identity as siblings in Christ. That's part of why we love when people are willing to be baptized on Sunday morning during a service. We don't require it, but we highly encourage it. 
Because for one, baptism is meant to serve as a public confession of faith. But then on top of that, we love when a new believer is formally initiated into the family of God. With their new brothers and sisters in Christ there to welcome them. Baptism serves to remind us that we have been united to Christ. But it also reminds us that we've been united to each other. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter compares and contrasts baptism to the story of Noah's Ark. You hear those two stories and you think, man, they don't have much in common. The only thing they have in common is water. Well, in the story of Noah's Ark, water was a tool of God's judgment. But in baptism, water is a symbol of our salvation. We see the cleansing theme of baptism in 1 Peter 3. Peter says that baptism is an appeal to God for a clean conscience. In other words, there really is something to be said for viewing our baptism as a clean slate or a fresh start. But all the while, we remember that the cleansing we really need isn't accomplished by the waters of baptism. The cleansing we really need is accomplished by the blood of Christ shed for our sins. Ultimately, it's the blood of Christ that saves us from the waters of judgment. So again, what does baptism mean? It's a reminder of our new identity, that we have been buried and raised with Christ. One theologian puts it this way. Baptism sets the believer between the two poles of redemption, the death and resurrection of Jesus on the one hand, and the future coming of Jesus on the other hand. Standing in between them, the Christian looks back to salvation accomplished and looks forward to salvation to be consummated and to the risen Lord in the present for grace to persist to the goal and to live worthily of such infinite love. Baptism is an encouragement to put off the old life of sin and pursue the newness of life that God has given us as his sons and daughters. We left our old life and our old identity behind when we went under that water. The early church father, Tertullian, compares a Christian being baptized to a soldier taking his oath. When a soldier takes his oath, he knows that he is not the same. He has new responsibilities. He has new duties. He has a new identity. He has new joys, even. And the same is true of a Christian when we're baptized. Baptism unites us to fellow believers, specifically in the household of God, the church. And not just this particular church, but believers from other churches as well. After we get baptized, we might not look any different on the outside. But baptism publicly affirms that we have been cleansed on the inside by the blood of Christ. It publicly affirms that we have been formally welcomed into the family of God. Now, at this point, when we talk about baptism at Prairie View, we get a lot of questions, but we get some questions more than others. And so a couple of the more common questions that we often are asked. Number one, where does our church stand on infant baptism? Well, many people cite a passage like Acts chapter 16 as evidence for infant baptism. In that chapter, we read that the Philippian jailer's entire household was baptized. 
But there's no clear evidence in that passage that his household included infants. And the text also indicates that those who were baptized believed, which implies that they were old enough to hear and understand Paul's teaching. We think the New Testament is pretty loud about people being baptized after they believe, but virtually silent on the subject of infant baptism. Now, that being said, we recognize that this is not a make or break issue. There are sound and reputable churches and sound and reputable denominations that have their reasons for practicing infant baptism. And there are plenty of believers out there that we consider brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we disagree about baptism. And when we talk about how we practice baptism, we're not talking about it in a way to somehow dismiss or mock the baptism that you may have experienced as an infant. Many people look back at their infant baptisms and they say that it was a very significant moment in their lives. Even if they couldn't remember it, even if they weren't fully aware of what was happening, it's very meaningful to them that their parents took them to the church and had them baptized. And we want to respect that. But we also want to make it clear what we believe Scripture teaches about baptism. And then what about the mode of baptism? We sometimes get asked about sprinkling or pouring or immersion. Well, we practice immersion. We think that matches up with Scripture. We think that matches up with church history. And again, we think that imagery of dying and rising can be very, very powerful. But that being said, we're honestly less concerned about how the water is applied and more concerned with the heart and the motivation of the person being baptized. Our main priority is this, that you've heard, understood, and believed the gospel before you were baptized. And then finally, we're sometimes asked, why must you be baptized to be a member of Prairie View? Well, as we'll discuss in a few weeks, when you become a member of this church, our leaders are publicly endorsing you as a believer in Christ. We are saying to the world that this person is a good representative of Christ himself. And we believe this person is a good representative of our church as well. Thus, we expect members of our church to be baptized. It doesn't have to have happened here. There's nothing particularly special or unique about our water. But if you want to be a member of this church... We do expect you to be baptized in line with what this church believes Scripture teaches about baptism. But then there's one more good thing I'll add about baptism. And it's the fact that people like tangible signs. We like things that we can see, hear, taste, and touch. That's part of why we have wedding ceremonies and wear wedding rings. That's why we have graduation ceremonies and degrees. You can still be married if you didn't have a formal ceremony or if you don't even wear a ring. You can still be a graduate even if you don't walk in your cap and gown. But part of the value of those ceremonies, part of the value of those traditions, is that they publicly acknowledge a new identity. The ring you wear on your finger announces to others and reminds you that you are someone's spouse. And the degree on the wall testifies to others and reminds you that you put in the work 
and got the education. And you can prove it. Along the same lines, we also like fixed points. That's part of why we celebrate anniversaries. We like being able to point to a specific moment or a specific day when our new identity became official. We can say that that's the day I became a husband, or that's the day I became a wife, or that's the day I became a graduate. At some level, your baptism can serve as your formal, maybe unofficial anniversary of becoming a member of God's family. Now, sadly, of course, there are bad ways to view baptism. Some overemphasize the act of baptism itself. But baptism on its own doesn't save us. Apart from the grace of God, apart from the cross of Christ, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, baptism is just getting wet. But conversely, we're also tempted to underemphasize baptism. Baptism is not just a hoop to jump through or a box to check or some tedious gesture that we do just so we can say we obey Jesus or just so we can become a member. That way we can serve in the children's ministry. Baptism is meant to be a meaningful moment in our Christian walk and not only for us, but for the brothers and sisters in Christ who witness it. As we close, John Calvin says this. Baptism serves as our confession before men, inasmuch as it is a mark by which we openly declare that we wish to be ranked among the people of God, by which we testify that we agree with all Christians in the worship of the one true God and in one religion, by which, in short, we publicly assert our faith, so that not only do our hearts breathe, but our tongues also, and all the members of our body, in every way they claim, Proclaim the power of God. If you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, you're missing out on a gift of God. And we would love to talk to you about it. And if you're not a believer, but you're starting to wrestle with it, you're starting to think about it, you're going back and forth, you're having some doubts, you're having some questions, we'd love to talk to that to you about that as well. And we hope and pray that one day you will believe and that we would have the joy and privilege of baptizing you. Christ's blood was shed on the cross for your sins. And if you believe that, you who were once lost have now been found. You who were once orphans have now been adopted. You who were once impure and unclean have now been washed. And baptism serves as a wonderful reminder of these glorious gifts of God's grace. So I pray that you as an individual believer and we as a church family would understand the important role that baptism plays. It reminds us of the new identity we've been given. It reminds us that we have been washed. We have been cleansed. And it reminds us that we are united to Christ and that we are united to each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. We read things in your word about the things you call us to do, things like baptism, things like communion. 
And sometimes we might be tempted to wonder why we have to do these things. Why do we have to be baptized? Why do we have to take communion? Why do we have to make such a point to remember the body and blood of Christ? But Father, you give us these commands. You give us these rules. You give us these callings because you know that they are for our good. You know that we need them. And so, Father, I pray that we would obey them, that we would find great joy in them, because they are for our good and for our joy and for our maturity. And so, Father, as we talk about things like baptism, as we talk about things like communion, these are wonderful reminders to look back to Christ, to know that our baptism points to what your son Jesus has done for us. And that communion very explicitly points to what your son Jesus has done for us. These things remind us of our salvation. And for that reason, we're grateful for them. And so, Father, as we prepare to leave this place, I pray that we would go out as people knowing more than ever and knowing for sure that we have been united to your son, Jesus Christ, by your grace. And when we wonder about it, when we have doubts about it, when we second-guess it, I pray that one way you can remind us is by looking back at that moment when we were baptized. What a gift that is. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.